0: Good to be with you guys one last time this year. Excited to get to uh, wrap up our time in Second Peter tonight and to just get to spend this little, uh, little bit together uh, one more time. It's kind of bummer, it's hard to see you guys a little bit, but I'm just going to trust that you guys are all intently listening all night long. Uh, I went yesterday, I had a chance to drive and go visit the campus of the college that I attended and graduated from like 18 years ago now, which is kind of wild, I know. Uh, Ozark Christian College, a, a small little ministry school in Joplin, Missouri. Actually, myself and Alec both graduated from there, uh, kind of where, where we went to kind of get ready for ministry and those kinds of things, and loved my time there, enjoyed it. Um, while I was driving there yesterday, I started thinking about this Uh, tradition that Ozark has. I don't know if they still have it or not. I'm just gonna assume they still have it. Uh, This tradition that takes place every year right around this time. Uh, It was called Senior Skip Day and I'm not exactly (coughs) sure why it was called Senior Skip Day because it was really everybody's skip day. Uh, and, And so I don't know if it started for seniors and then spread out but it was this this one day a year towards the end of the year in the spring semester When every class was canceled uh, on campus, all over campus, Uh, no attendance required, no tests uh, taken, no papers or homework to turn in, everything is just shut down. And the whole campus is off. In fact, they usually kind of would put on like a giant uh, picnic or something like that nearby with a lot of different activities like uh, softball against the faculty or, or like hot dog eating contests and all kinds of just kind of crazy things like that. It was this really amazing, like fun moment that everybody looked forward to uh, as the year began to wrap up, super excited about. It. There's just this one thing, and that was that... Uh, Nobody ever knew when Senior Skip Day was, that it was not on the calendar, it was not in any sort of schedule, they never told you when Senior Skip Day was going to come, and it came on a different day every year, different time, somewhere in like the last month, that's all you knew. Uh, You you, a lot of times they would announce it like the day before in chapel We had chapel Tuesdays and Thursdays and uh, and so it it would get like announced right then And that was uh, all of a sudden that's you knew that that was it and this is a big deal because uh, a lot of people some people would go and hang out and do the big picnic and the Activities and all that stuff a lot of people would like make other plans around senior skip day They would go hang out in town or they would make like a little day road trip to Tulsa Or to Springfield or even maybe Kansas City if they were really daring or uh, if they wanted to get up really early and go to it. Um, and so, so everyone wanted to know when it was, but you didn't know until right before. And, and I remember it would get down to those last few weeks and kind of people would start talking about it, right? When senior skip day, have you heard anything? Do you know? And, and uh, every time somebody got up to give like an announcement at chapel, like everyone would kind of lean forward. Like, is this it? Is this gonna be the one? I have a paper due tomorrow and I have not even started. I need senior skip day. Please, senior skip day, right? And, and so that kind of stuff was happening all the time. And then, uh, and, and they would, so sometimes actually they would announce it in chapel the day before, sometimes they wouldn't even, you wouldn't even know until the day of, like there were, sometimes when uh, you would wake up at six in the morning to professors running down your hall, banging pots and pans, and knocking on the doors, and just shouting through the halls and stuff, there were only like six dorms there, so it's not like they had to just do this for hours, right, but, uh, but they, they would run through it, so literally, you wouldn't know until the day of, and so everybody's always trying to figure out when is senior skip day, is it coming, and I heard this, and I heard this, and, and my buddy, his roommate, in student council, and, and he said that that guy told him that it might be coming on May the 3rd, right, and, and so there's all these different kind of guesses, and people would begin to like try to do the math and figure out, we've got this many days left, and it's probably going to be a post-chapel day, and, and so they would try and figure all these things out and make their predictions, and, uh, and, and rumors would start to spread. I remember one year uh, on the big announcement board up in our hallway, my friend Eric uh, wrote like, you know, I, I therefore prophesy or decree that senior skip day shall be, you know, the 5th of May, right? And then I walked by later and somebody else had written on there like, Eric Emerson is a false prophet. Do not believe his <laughs> lies, right? And so there were always like these things going around. Everyone wanted to know, but nobody knew exactly what it is. All we knew is that it could happen at any time. And everyone was trying to make plans like around this thing that could happen. Maybe I need to work on my paper. Maybe we got skip day in a couple days. Maybe I've got an extra day going that I don't know. Maybe we should plan our road trip for this, but is, I don't know, if, if so, I might miss like a test if it's not senior skip day. Everyone's trying to figure out what they're going to do based on when this day is going to come. Not knowing when, but knowing it was going to come. And that's just like a little, I think, microcosm, a little small snippet of what Peter is trying to get after in this last chapter of his book. As he writes this letter, perhaps the last little section in the last letter that he will ever write, he knows his time is coming soon, he focuses in on this day that they need to be ready for, his readers need to be ready for, and how that should change their life. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verses 1 and 2, says this. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you, In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. He starts it off with these words, dear friends, you will see those words, that that little couplet there, dear friends, you will see that four times in this last chapter. It's actually one word in the Greek. Uh, I think it's, if I want to get it right, agapetoi. Okay, so it's like, it's this plural noun burst uh, off of the word agape, right? And, and it's, it's stronger than dear friends, really. It's more like uh, my loved ones. Okay, those I love. Uh, beloved sometimes it gets translated, but loved ones. He's going to call them that four times as he wraps up this chapter. He says, this is now the second letter that I have written to you. Decent chances he's referring to First Peter. And now he's here writing 2 Peter. But there's, there's also a chance that he's talking about others. Peter surely wrote some other letters aside from these. But these are the ones that wound up in our scriptures. These are the ones that God see fit, uh, saw fit to, to last so that we could have them in our Bibles today. But he says the goal of both of them, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, or whatever this other letter was, the goal is that he would stir up what he calls a sincere understanding. Just kind of an odd phrase. Uh, a kind of knowledge, he says, that is uh, sincere, pure, all the way through, not, not just intellectual, not just knowing what is right or knowing the truth, but this ability to take this knowledge and uh, apply it out so that you live a pure and holy, sincere life. That's what he's trying to stir up for them. And he does not do that by giving them a lot of brand new ideas, but actually old ones. He says, I, uh, my, my whole goal is to stir this stuff up by way of reminder so that you would recall the words previously, previously spoken by the holy prophets, so like in the Old Testament, and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Uh, so the things that have come and come to you through, through me and through others. And, and more than likely, he's talking about the commands to like, grow in holiness, to be like Jesus, because that's what he's been talking about throughout this uh, whole book, to, to grow up in their faith and to be holy in their pursuit of Him. Um, so, so he says this, and then he goes on in verses 3 and 4. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is His coming that He promised Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Now, last semester, we talked about this idea um, because Peter brought up in 1 uh, Peter uh, this idea that we are in the last days. He says that we're in the last days, and you'll see that come up. Uh, fairly often in the New Testament, this idea of the last days. They talk about them a lot, but they don't talk about the last days quite as much in the future as you might expect. A lot of times they talk about the last days as though they are either present or very near to us. Um, That's the way the New Testament thinks about the last days, and the reason why is because the writers of the New Testament see all of history broken into two major pieces. Basically, you have Everything that led us to Jesus and everything that comes from Jesus and his first arrival, his first coming. All history centers around that moment. The uh, arrival, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything else sits on that. And because Jesus has come... uh, Once, Because he's already come once to this earth uh, They believe, they know that actually now With his ascension back to heaven Everything has been set in motion for his second coming For the day when he will come and make everything right again And restore things And they talk throughout the New Testament Like this could happen at any moment And because it could happen at any moment You ought to live like it could happen at any moment it ought to affect the way you live your lives, but this seems to present a problem for many people. Especially those who are in the kind of more suspicious category, the, the false teachers and those who are kind of drawn to them. Because Peter's writing in probably sixty-five or AD 65, uh, 30 to 35 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven and many people seem to think he might come like right back soon and now it's been over three decades and nothing and so people are starting to wonder how how imminent really is this whole second coming how do we know really that this is going to happen at all Let's be honest, history has just kind of moved forward from the day things started, and it seems to just continue to do that now. How do we know that, that God has any intentions of actually stepping in and changing things and making? things different. Maybe, maybe all of that stuff was made up. Maybe Jesus is not coming. Maybe history just slowly rolls forward with no real end, with no decisive culmination or judgment from God. And this seems to be, for those false teachers, somewhat behind their immoral living. Alex talked to us out of chapter 2 last week, and, and we saw that they're not just teaching bad things, they're doing bad things. They're sleeping around with whoever they want to, and they don't even care, who knows. They're taking advantage of people to get rich off of them and all those things. And, and it seems to be part of their thinking is, there's no judgment coming. I'm not, not going to face any consequences for this thing, so I may as well live it up and live how I want to live. And I confess, sometimes... I don't know if I would ever just state this. I know I don't actually believe this, but sometimes I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I start to believe that they're right. Not so much that I won't face consequences for my actions, but, but almost just that history's gonna just continue to roll on like it always has, that there might not be like this second coming. And again, I'm not saying I actually believe that, but I can say that I absolutely live like that a lot of times. The idea of Jesus returning is often far from my mind, and sometimes it feels, feels like maybe they're onto to something. I mean, things have carried on from the beginning, and nothing's changing, so what are we supposed to do with that? The problem, Peter says, actually, though, with these false teachers and those who begin to doubt these things is that they are deliberately overlooking two key things. The first one he talks about in verses 5 through 7. He says this, They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. And through these the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, that is the same word that God used to speak all things into existence, the same word that sent judgment and destruction on the earth during the flood, that same word God will use. Where does he say that? Uh, Verse... Where am I at? Seven. Uh, Through the world, all that appears, the present heavens and earth are... Okay, found it. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It may look, Peter says, on the surface, like God does not intervene. Like everything just runs according to natural laws and blind chance. That is what it looks like sometimes, if we're honest. But Peter says, remember this, God does intervene. The very existence of creation, the very fact that there is something rather than nothing is evidence of that. It is due to the fact that God chose to enter himself in and create and make something outside of himself, make something from nothing. It was his word that brought this in. And then he says that same word brought massive destruction uh, once already through the great flood in Genesis chapter six through nine. He did this with the word and will do it again with the same word one day. Peter says, perhaps soon, God will bring judgment. He will bring destruction on all ungodly people. They will face his wrath and his judgment one day when Jesus comes again. And here's where people go, yeah, but, I mean, it's been thousands of years. Two thousand years at least since Jesus and nothing. So, I mean, like, what are the odds that that's going to happen Anytime soon. And that leads us to the second thing that these people overlook. Verse 8. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be dissolved. He says, a person might look and go, well, listen, yeah, it's been thousands of years, so I guess nothing is happening, But, but what Peter's trying to point out, he asks this question, like, what is a thousand years to an infinite, eternal God? To a being who stands outside of time a thousand years is nothing it's a heartbeat it's it's a blink of an eye so you're trying to count in human years if you will you're trying to think in terms uh, of like a human it's like a a kid who knows christmas is coming like two days later and those two days seem to last some like 500 years for them right because Kids, the whole like, uh, issue of time is something that they have a hard time getting their mind around and everything seems to drag. Uh, adults, grown-ups, those things kind of move more normal. That concept times a billion with God, who again stands outside of time. He doesn't even have to like wait and experience all of these things. That's not something that's there. He says you're judging by human standards, but also, Peter says, you're misjudging the reasoning behind those thousands of years. You're misjudging the cause behind it. It is not a failure on God's part to come through. That's not why it's been so long. It is not because God is aloof, because he's distant, because he's not paying attention. It has nothing to do with that. He says it's patience. It is patience for those people who are not yet his, for those people who have not yet chosen him. Who have not yet repented? He waits impatient because make make no mistake. Peter says, "The day of the Lord will come." The day of the Lord. It's it's not a phrase that Peter's come up with here. It's one that gets used repeatedly throughout the prophets. They talk about this great and coming day of the Lord, this, this moment where God's decisive intervention will come, and he will step in and he will right all the wrongs. And he says here, and this is also not just Peter, this is said multiple times in the New Testament, that it will come like a thief. That is, thieves, when they're coming to steal something from you, they don't, they don't announce that ahead of time. Right? They don't give you a call Hey, thinking I might drop by two in the morning tomorrow, just want you to know, want to know if that works for you, right? It's not what thieves do. Thieves try to not give you any sort of heads up. They come when you don't expect it. That's how it works. And and he says this is actually what the second coming of Jesus will be like. This is what the day of judgment will come. It will come when you do not expect it, which is always kind of funny to me, why so many people try to predict when Jesus will come. Because Jesus himself said, I'm going to come when you don't know. And so either that person predicted and Jesus is wrong or their prediction is wrong. Because he says, I'm I'm coming in a way that you won't know, that you won't be ready for those things. And so, Peter says, because it will come. This has implications for how we ought to live. Look at verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be. In holy conduct and godliness, as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter says, much like senior skip day, your expectancy of this coming event ought to have implications for what you do. It ought to create a certain kind of action in you. But unlike Senior Skip Day, Senior Skip Day, we were always looking for this day so that we could put things off. Always looking forward to this day so that we could kind of do what we want on that day. So this is actually the reverse. Because you know this day may come. It's time to work hard. Because you know this day may come and you don't want to be caught slacking. You don't want to be caught lazy. You don't want to be caught walking away from the one who's about to come to this earth. He says you ought to be living in a way that is holy and in line with him. Now, there are a couple of things in these verses that I admit I cannot fully explain how they will work. He says two things here. Uh, one is there appears to be some way in which our actions as followers of Jesus can actually hasten the coming of Jesus. He says, uh, uh, verse 12, as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming there's some level of what we do that, that could possibly be like almost speeding that up. Now, in the context that would seem to be by our holy living, that by the way we live, the Jewish rabbis actually, there was, there was this heavy tradition uh, back, in, back in this day, actually before that, if for just one day, all the Jewish people would keep the law, like if, if just for one day, every one of the Israelites would follow the law without breaking it, then, the, then God would send his Messiah on that day. But the, the problem is nobody could do it, right? And, and so there's some, maybe this is what Peter's kind of getting after this idea of like, um, not that we like, not that if every Christian will live a perfect life, Jesus will come back, but this idea that our holiness actually kind of pulls him towards this. It could be actually that our evangelism and our missions pulls towards this. There's some who believe that, that the, once we have kind of reached the task of reaching the world and the gospel, or reaching the world with the gospel, that Jesus will come again. I don't know if I fully buy that, but there's, there's something he's talking about. It could be prayer. We're told throughout the Bible to pray things like come Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. Maranatha, Lord, come. Uh, That idea, and so maybe it's through our prayers that these things are hastened. I don't fully know what that is. The second thing that I cannot fully explain is Peter's described, you may have caught it, I think three times by now, this idea that everything we see and know will be destroyed by fire, will be dissolved. He uses the words like the elements, like the basic building blocks of the physical world will be dissolved and melted away. What I don't know for sure is how much of that is literal and how much of that is uh, like a metaphor. I don't know exactly. What I do know, though, is the purpose behind it, because Peter makes that clear. The, The goal is not simply destruction and annihilation. The goal is purity and renewal. Uh, just like you might uh, melt uh, metals down in, in some sort of furnace and the fire melts away all the impurities. That's kind of the idea here, that God will one day come and with destruction, whatever that destruction may look like, we will rid the earth of everything bad and then he will remake it, bringing about a new heavens and a new earth. This is something that is repeated throughout scripture. New heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, 1, John says towards the end of it all, and then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, the old earth, the old heavens and earth had passed away, he says. That. This is talked about a lot. Um, but the primary idea that Peter's getting at in these verses, don't miss, uh, don't miss the forest for the trees here. The primary idea in what he's saying is that we need to recognize that Jesus is coming again, and it could be 1,000 years from now, and it could be 10 years from now, and it could be before you wake up tomorrow morning. Like you might go to bed for the last time tonight. And he could come at that time. What we know is this, that the line is drawn somewhere. That it's not going to go on forever. That there's a moment that God has planned and figured out. There will be a day when Jesus returns to put everything right and to bring perfect justice. And that justice will mean judgment and eternal separation. Hell for all those who refused to submit themselves to Jesus. For all those who refused to trust him and for all those who said that they believed in him but truly did not. Those who called themselves his followers and Christians but never actually had any sort of saving faith. There was no fruit in their life to display that they actually belonged to him. And when that day comes, you don't get to make adjustments you don't get to, like, kind of fix some things and kind of adjust the way you decided to live or what you wanted to believe or those kinds of things. There's no other chance there. It is done at that moment, and you are done at that moment. And so the fact that he hasn't come back yet, we ought to see what that is. It's patience. It's kindness to those who've refused him over and over again. It's kindness to those who have claimed to follow him but have not truly followed them. It sounds very similar, actually, here to something that Paul says in Romans 2.4. Do you not know that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? It's not kindness to you so that you can continue to live however you want to. The The whole goal is that God is calling out to you, that he's trying to bring you back to him. And so, Paul says, and so, Peter says, let God's patience do that. Let it draw you back. From here, Peter's going to close out his letter with these three main exhortations that kind of flow out of this idea that Jesus is coming. Three commands in light of the fact that Jesus will one day return. And we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back together and we will to talk through those commands, those exhortations, as we close out our time together this year. To it, uh, As you know, our usual practice is that we uh, will spend the first half of the evening going through the text and then the second half we generally kind of try to take a theme from that and seek to like understand it better or apply that to our lives. We're doing something a little bit different tonight. And that is that we're actually going to close out with Peter's last words. So you'll notice we didn't actually finish out the book in that first half. We're doing it here at the very end. Uh, So I I had a friend in college at Ozark uh, whose name was Nick, Nick Parsons. And Nick was a good buddy. He was a year older than me. And actually a a really great kind of influence uh, on my own faith, my own walk with Jesus. He led a D group that I was in my freshman year. But Nick uh, had only become a Christian just like a few years earlier. He became a Christian like his junior or senior year, did not grow up in a Christian home, uh, did not know really anything about Jesus or want anything to do with him, and then God had got a hold of his heart, uh, gave his life to Christ, got super excited about that, felt like God was calling him into ministry and went and did that, and and ended up doing missions work uh, in Thailand and Japan, and is working in San Francisco today, so some really cool stuff. Uh, But Nick tells this story about when he was like a, a brand new believer, like first couple months and he's in this stage where he's so excited about God and all the things that he's doing. And he's just reading through his Bible um, and just devouring it. Uh, but he, he's hitting some parts that are really hard for him. Some parts that he's having a really hard time understanding. And so he comes to the book of Romans. And Romans is a beautiful book and a good book, but there are some sections in Romans that you get to, and I mean, some of the, like, the, some of the like, greatest like, scholars and PhDs are trying to debate and solve exactly what, how to interpret some of these things, right? And so Nick is a new believer, is hitting, and he feels like he's just like, hitting a brick wall, and I got no idea what to do with this, and he's getting so frustrated. And so he, he says that he stops, and he just sits there, and he's just like, God, I don't get what Paul is saying here. Paul's the writer of Romans, right? He's like, I don't get what Paul is saying. Uh, help me. I don't know what to do with this, Lord. Would you please just give me some kind of word? And then he does this thing that you should never do when you are studying the Bible, okay? Um, and Nick would say this. He's like, don't do this. I shouldn't have done this. But this is what he, he did. This thing. He was like, God, just give me some kind of word. And he just opens the Bible up, right? And he takes his finger, and he just like points, He's like, I just need some kind of sign. And he just so happens to point to 2 Peter 3.16, which says, we're about to read, Paul speaks about these things in all his letters, and there are some matters that are hard to understand. <laughs> and that's like it. Uh, he's like, you got to be kidding me. Uh, I would recommend that you do not ever do that. Uh oh but if you do, I hope God does something like that to you, all right? Points you to something crazy um, in those moments. Um, I, I think that's a fascinating verse, 2 Peter 3.16. For some reasons we'll get into in a second, but I want to I step back. We're starting in 14. As I said, we're in the last words of, of Peter. These are the last, last words. This is how he wraps up. His very last letter to these people with a few different exhortations and charges that he wants to give to them. And truthfully, as I was reading through that, it just, as I looked at what he was saying, I just thought these, these I think are some fitting exhortations for you. As you go off into the summer, some, many of you leaving town and leaving this community, leaving some of the people, some of you moving into not just like a summer job, but into the next stage of life as you've graduated Um, there are some words that would be good for you to hear from 2 Peter tonight. Three major exhortations. The first one is this. Make every effort. He says that in verse 14, Therefore, dear friends, that's that phrase again, my loved ones. Therefore, my loved ones, while you wait for these things, while you wait for the coming of Jesus, make every effort to be found without spot, Or blemish in his sight at peace. Now, if that phrase, make every effort, sounds familiar to you, that's because Peter used that phrase three times to open up his letter. Kept coming after it over and over again. We talked about it a few weeks ago. But there, in the very few uh, opening verses of Second Peter, Peter charged his le- listeners and he said, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness and your goodness with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control. And he goes on down this list. Make every effort to add these things to your life to be found holy and faithful to Jesus. That's the, the call in that moment. But here the call is this. When 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 Jesus shows up, you you, you be sure that he finds you without spot or blemish. That you are actually at least making the effort to be that, without spot or without blemish, and at peace, he says. This idea of being at peace, I think, with God, to be at peace with God when Jesus comes, and to be at peace with his people around you, but that without spot or blemish is interesting. For a couple different reasons one we'll talk about later but the first reason is because it appears to be the exact opposite of what he called the false teachers in chapter 2 verse 13 he says that they are causing all these problems and he usually he uses these phrases they are blots and blemishes they are spots they are blemishes they are things that mess up your gathering and now he calls his true followers to not be either of those things the idea is that peter's listeners and us today He wants us to know these truths, that we do not live in a neutral world. We live in a world that at every turn takes the good gifts that God has given us. Sex, food and drink, technology, entertainment, and beauty has taken every one of those things and contaminated them and distorted them. And I don't know if the world is worse than it's ever been. Some people like to talk like that. Some people like to think like that. I don't know if that's true. I do know that the world has more access to you than it ever has. And so what the world takes and contaminates, what the the world takes and twists and perverts, it has the ability to push to you over and over and over again. It has more access to you than ever. And one of the great tragedies of the Western church is how easily we have allowed ourselves to drift into this. How easily we have allowed ourselves to be contaminated by the world to the point that there's often little discernible difference between the people of God and the people of the world when it comes to things like our attitudes and actions towards sex, when it comes to the way that we talk to people or that we talk about people, those people that we don't like, those people that frustrate us, the kind of language and the coarseness that we use when it comes to the kinds of entertainment that you and I consume often looks no different than the way our unbelieving friends do. And we begin to, as one preacher has said, we find ourselves often laughing at things that Jesus died for. As it's portrayed in movies as silly and funny, we find ourselves getting a kick out of it And a lot of that makes sense because the world comes at us from so many different angles. And all of this comes to us in a way that we will not be able to be without spot or blemish in his sight without doing what Peter tells us to do. Make every effort. We're not going to be able to live the kind of lives we're meant to live in this world without having friends that you will be accountable to this summer that you give permission that you'll check in with and they can check in with you and that you'll talk to them about the temptations and struggles that you're having without having some friends that will pray for you. You're not going to be able to live this way without getting rid, probably, of some things, maybe even distancing some relationships that you know pull you back into the same sinful patterns over and over again, getting rid of some conveniences or some possessions that are tripping you up. You're not going to be able to live this way without making effort in prayer devoting yourself to God to help you walk faithfully to him. Make every effort, Peter says. He continues on in verses 15, 16. This is where he talks about Paul. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you, according to the wisdom given to him. He's probably, I think, talking about Romans two fourteen that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Regard that as a patient thing. Um, he says in verse 16, he speaks about these things in all his letters, and there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. There's this really interesting point here, though. Um, right there at the end, he says, they twist Paul's words as they do with the rest of the scriptures. I think that's really fascinating. Because that means as early as, as early as AD 65, they are considering the words of Paul to be coming from God. That God is actually bringing these authoritative words. And and, and they believe that God is actually giving them Scripture to listen to. And Peter is writing and and implying these things. But he's also saying that he and Paul are saying much of the same things. And and, and people will take those and twist this. We catch glimpses of it in Romans 3.8 where Paul says that people like to take my words. And they say that because God can bring good from everything, why not just act evil and let God do what he wants with it? Paul says their condemnation is deserved, that they would take these kinds of words of mine and twist them. Or we see in uh, Romans 6.1 where it seems like because Paul is teaching about grace, God's graced us, that others were twisting it and saying because God gives grace, you can live however you want to live. Sin as often as you want, grace is just going to keep coming your way. Paul says, by no means. That's not the point of grace. That's not what it's designed to do. People are taking these words of his and twisting these things into a license for sin. And that leads us to the second exhortation of Peter's. And that is this, be on your guard. Verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, you know that people are going to take these words and twist them. You know that people are going to try to lead you astray Since you know this in advance, be on your guard, so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. Just as the world is not neutral in its morality, it is not neutral in its message. That the world this summer is going to speak a thousand different messages to you that run contrary to the teaching of God's word. Messages about money, And how important it is, and how important it should be to you. Messages about your identity, about what makes you valuable and important. Messages about sexuality and gender, about the church and how it's not worth sticking with or being a part of. There will be those people that you will encounter either face to face or in a church building or oftentimes online. People who will take the word of God and twisting it, and twist it, telling you things like, well, Jesus said that we ought to love our neighbors. And that's true, actually. Jesus did say that. Not just our neighbors, that we ought to love our enemies as well. And then they'll go with that, and they'll go, Jesus says we ought to love our neighbors. And if we really love our neighbors, that means that we will accept and affirm their choices, even if those choices go against what the Bible says to do. And that's not true. It's taking the words of God and twisting them to your own advantage. People will say those kinds of things. They'll say Jesus loved and he did, but that meant for Jesus speaking against the sin that was destroying people. So Peter says to them, and I say to you, be on your guard. What does that mean, actually, to be on your guard against false teaching? I mean, you're supposed to like walk into every room with kind of like, like just waiting for someone to jump out at you with false teaching? Or, or are you supposed to walk into every like, church or room, kind of like plugging your ears just in case somebody says something not true? What does it look like to be on guard against false teaching? What does that even mean? I should never trust anybody. No it, Being on guard means recognizing that there are always messages coming your way. As I said, this world is not neutral. The the world that you and I live in, the culture you and I live in, is always speaking something to you. Even though the world will never say these words to you out loud that your importance is tied to how pretty you are, it will whisper to you over and over again through the algorithms on Instagram. And even though no one is ever gonna say these words, rarely will someone say these words. That the whole point and purpose of life is to gather as much stuff and as much experiences as you can to go do really amazing things, to travel, to eat really amazing food. The world's not going to say that out loud, but your TikTok feed is going to scream that at you over and over again. This is what life is about. This is the good life. Live for these things. And the Bible will come to you over and over again and say, do not live for yourself. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. But everything around you is going to be telling you the opposite. Being on guard means recognizing that not everyone who quotes the Bible is teaching the truth. Being on guard means that knowing, that the, uh, knowing the Word of God enough to be able to perceive the difference between the truth and the lies that people may speak about it. It means, being on guard means proactively making time for this word so that it has access to you and setting limits on things like your phone so that the world has less access to you. Third thing Peter says to these people, and the third thing I say to you tonight, simply this, grow. Grow. Grow in light of the fact that Jesus will come again, in light of the fact that he has saved you, in light of the fact that you belong to him, and there's a world working against you. You grow in in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's his phrase right there in verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. There's one scholar, one commentator who says that verse right there is 2 Peter in a nutshell. It's all summed up in those words, the call to grow in Jesus and exalt him in all his glory. Here at the table we, we talk a lot about being lifelong, life-wide disciples of Jesus. Those kinds of people whose lives are being formed so that I want to follow him I want to honor Him. I want to glorify Him for my whole life and with every part of my life. That's what we want for you. We don't just want you to believe in Jesus. We don't just want you to go to church. We don't just want you to check the Christian box. We want you to grow. We want you to become like Jesus. But that does not happen by accident. It doesn't just happen because you want to. You can't go into this summer going, I'm going to grow. I want to grow this summer. I really want to do that. That is not enough. It takes effort and intentionality. It takes discipline to grow up in Jesus. In my college years, I found that Christmas break and summer break were often some of the hardest times for me. And I struggled to know why, but as I look back, it makes a lot of sense. It's because... It's in those times that I am plucked up out of the community that has walked beside me for so many months and that is been there and that I could talk to, and that helped grow me. And then I'm also taken away from a lot of the rhythms that I had, like, like you have, like going to your table group on one night, like going to the table here, like going to church with these same people at Sunnybrook. And I'm plucked out, out of the schedule and the rhythms that I had, and everything gets kind of switched and shifted around. And so I found that I often struggled the most with temptation. I often struggled the most with failing. I almost often struggled the most with discipline during the Christmas and summer breaks. And and, and it is important. This is why we talk about having rhythms that we can anchor ourselves to as we are pulled out of the, the areas that we've been in, the places we've been in. We talk a lot about this idea at the table. It's one of our four things, formational rhythms. Rhythms, habits, disciplines that form us and grow us. We were meant to live like Jesus. Do we have that slide, by the way? Look at that. We got it there. Some of you guys have seen this a lot, that's okay. Uh, it's okay if you see it a lot and if you see it a lot more. I want these truths to stick with you and that is this idea that we were made up at the top to live missionally like Jesus, to love people like Jesus and to serve people like Jesus and to seek the lost like Jesus, to make disciples like Jesus. That's what we were made to do and that requires intentionality and effort and discipline to live that way but the truth of the matter is that kind of life cannot be sustained those kinds of rhythms of ministry and service will, will run you dry unless you are operating in a level of spiritual rhythms and discipline, unless those things are setting kind of a foundation for those things, that you are engaged in prayer, that you are engaged in Christian community with people who know you, where you're known and, and you know them and those kinds of things. Unless you're engaging in the study of your word, those things are important, but of course, underneath that, many students fail to be able to carry out the life-giving disciplines of the Bible and memory work and and all of those kinds of things because they struggle so much with healthy personal rhythms. Because they're not sleeping like they should. Because they're uh, spending hours and hours on their phone during the day. Because they go to bed scrolling to the phone and it keeps them up. And it distracts them and all of those things. And so they struggle in those areas. And so we we stress these ideas that I I want to be able to do these things. I want to be able to follow Jesus well, which means I need to engage in healthy spiritual rhythms. And I need to engage in healthy personal rhythms. What if you made it a goal this year instead of just this this summer? Or for those of you who are graduating and going on into this next year, instead of just like I'm really going to try hard this summer, this year, I'm really just, I'm really gonna work on growing. I'm gonna read my Bible more this summer. What if you made it a goal to set some sort of specific, we talk about this sometimes, like one specific habit from each of those things. One thing this summer I'm gonna work to do better at, uh, going to bed, getting up at, at a good time. One specific habit from personal, one specific habit from spiritual, that I'm gonna be, let's say, reading my Bible before I read my phone, or before I look at my phone in the morning. Let God's voice be first in my life each day. Uh, or or, or, And and if you had one habit from there and and one habit from mission, if you just made that your goal this summer, to be intentional, uh, to, to try to grow in one way in each of these and see what may happen with that as you try to seek God through these things. Now, let me give you the bad news, and then I'll give you some good news, some really good news. The bad news is this. Even if you set those goals for yourself. You will probably fail. You definitely, over the course of your life, will fail. And a number of you will probably fail even over this summer. There will be times when you fail to be disciplined like you want. And you'll find yourselves falling back into the same old patterns and habits. There will be some of you, oh, I hope this isn't you, I hope it's no one in here, but, but the odds are in a room this size, there will be some of you this summer who may fall into deeper failure or deeper sin that you ever imagined possible. That you will find yourself stuck back in things that you thought you got rid of years ago. Or stuck in things that you didn't ever expect to get in in the first place. And when you do, you will experience deep regret and deep shame. And there will be a part of you that wonders why you're even trying because it doesn't seem to get you anywhere and you'll struggle with all of these things. But the good news is the very phrase that Peter uses to describe what Christian growth is. That very description is good news. How does he describe it? Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. This is huge. That's what growth is. Did you know that these two things, the grace and knowledge of Jesus, that is what saved you? That is what brought you in in the first place, right? For those wondering, maybe in the first... Half of this as we talked about this idea that one day those who are not with God will face judgment, will face His wrath, will face separation from Him. Maybe that was you sitting there going, that might be me. And so what do I got to do to make sure that's not me? What adjustments do I need to make now? Let me tell you what adjustments you don't make. You don't make an effort to be without blemish and spotless. That's not how you get yourself right with God. That's not how you find yourself at peace with Him. That's not how any of you got saved. You were saved not because you were without spot and without blemish, but because Jesus was. That's actually, it's interesting that, that Peter uses this. As I said, what's very fascinating is that's the exact phrase that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1 to describe Jesus. He says, you were saved by a lamb without spot or blemish. You were saved by him and it is his good grace the way that every one of us is saved is by this jesus was perfect even though you couldn't be and he came and died on a cross so no matter how many sins or failures you have if you would put your faith in him if you would come and throw yourself to him all of your sins go on him he takes all of those off you all of those spots and blemishes away from you so that you can then be pure and then he rose again and that knowledge of who jesus is and the grace that he gives to you through your faith in him, that same knowledge and that same grace is not just what saved you, it's what grows you. It's the very thing that allows you to live out the life that he calls you to. To come back to the good news of Jesus over and over again. Not only because when you fail, it beckons you back and it gives you grace and forgiveness in your failures. But also because that grace is what gives you the Holy Spirit and and we talked about this in 2 Peter 1 That he has given us everything we need for a life of godliness, Peter says. Which means, even though you may fail, you've got what you need within you by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You've got what you need within you to overcome those things to move past those things and to grow. That knowledge and grace saved you. That knowledge and grace grows you and sustains you, covers all your failures. And that's why that bottom layer of the pyramid is so important that even if you fail in these things, and even if you fail in far worse things, you have value that is given to you through Jesus by the gospel. It is not earned by your Bible reading. It is not earned by never ever having any sort of spots or blemishes on your record. It is earned by the love of Jesus and what he has as It is given to you freely by the love of Jesus and what he has done. Cling to that. Live in that. Come back to that again and again. If you are one of those people who has claimed a faith in Jesus, but you know you look at your life, and there is nothing there that reflects that. There is no real love for him or his people. your life does not match up with those things, I hope tonight that you will you will not put off any longer, knowing that we may not wake up tomorrow without Jesus coming, that you will not put off any longer the chance to take hold of this grace that could be yours in Jesus, that is offered to you freely, simply by putting your faith in him, coming to him and repenting and confessing and being baptized into his name to let that be yours. And if you are, many of you, most of you are followers of Jesus, who may not be perfect, but you are trying faithfully, This is my exhortation to you. This is my prayer for you. May you go out and make every effort this summer to become more like him and to honor him. May you be on guard against the world who may try to lead you away from the one who loved you and saved you. And may you, not just this summer, but for the rest of your life, grow in the good, glorious grace of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of him, not just knowing about him, but knowing him. May that be your life from here on out. Let me pray, and we'll wrap up. Dear Father, I pray this prayer over my friends, my brothers and sisters, as they go out uh, from here, whether that be into uh, the next phase of life, or whether that be in the summer break. Lord, would you please allow them to grow up in Jesus more and more? God, by your Holy Spirit in them that makes it possible, would you please draw their eyes to Jesus and his good grace, and would you use that to open up their hearts to love him and want to obey him? God, would your Spirit who brings self-control bring that to us, bring us self-discipline so that we can make every effort to be pure and holy as we seek to follow you? And I pray what Peter prays here at the end, that to Jesus, through us in this room, to Jesus be all the glory both now and all into eternity. We ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.